Welcome back to Everything Just Changed, a podcast where we want to help you faithfully navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. I'm Bryce Hales, and I'm with Brad Edwards. We are both pastors and church planters starting new churches in the Western U.S., where we have been wrestling with the influence of secularism in our culture. And one of the things we've been experiencing is the way that secularism has polarized our culture into right and left. And the COVID-19 crisis, while it's of course new, it's a novel coronavirus, it's in many ways just exacerbating fissures that have existed for a long time. And so today we're picking back up a conversation we started in our last episode. In part one, we really just got to the problem as we're experiencing it right now. And so today, in part two, we want to move towards a solution. The solution to an anxious culture is not having all the right answers. If fear and anxiety are driving our divisions, that won't be calmed by arguing people into the correct point of view. The solution is being able to enter into conversation with anxious people who are tempted to polarize everything into right or left, entering into an anxious system without taking on that anxiety or letting it control us. So we finished part one by asking if the call of Christians in the moment that we're experiencing right now is not to have the right answers, but rather to stop the anxiety. But how do we do that? In part one, we were talking about Edwin Friedman's work around family systems theory. So let's pick up the conversation right there. If Friedman is saying that the solution to an anxious system is the well-differentiated leader, the person who's able to enter into anxiety without letting other people's anxiety pull them off track, but is still able to remain connected and present with people, then maybe the call of Christians in this moment is not to have the right answer and figure out how to thread the needle so that the right and the left are exactly balanced or whatever, or you win the day, you win the argument. Maybe the call of the Christian is to just stop the anxiety, right? To be present with our people, with each other, to be able to sit and listen to somebody that you don't agree with and kind of engage without responding with, hey, you're stupid. Hey, that's wrong. Yeah. And I, I think about this and, and I think as a, we're, we are at least theologically evangelical, even if we are not culturally evangelical and have lots of like more qualifiers and disclaimers. That's a whole, that's a whole nother series of episodes right there to tease that out. But yeah, I'm with you. Totally. Right. And so if the thing that's keeping us so divided, the thing that's feeding this polarization is this, this anxiety how do we have a non-anxious presence in the midst of both the conversation as well as the actual solution that we uh, all apparently have so much conviction around? Hmm. Yeah. So I think there's two things that we have to do if we're going to live without anxiety. Not, not that we're going to be ever free completely of anxiety, but if we're going to be able to be connected to people with divergent convictions without allowing anxiety of our system, of our culture to draw us in. And if I could just do the pastor thing and pull a, a Bible passage in here. First Peter 5, 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I mean, that's just so beautiful. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Okay, there's an acknowledgement that we don't know what God's doing, but he is on his throne and he is in control. And this crisis didn't take him by surprise. And it requires humility 
to step back and acknowledge, you know, the person whose concern is maybe more for the science and mine is maybe more for the economic or vice versa. They are a human being. They do have children that they care about. They have friends, neighbors, loved ones that they're trying to support. And so there's, there's humility that's necessary. Uh, the second thing, this isn't in this passage, so maybe there's three things. The second thing is that we got to lament, you know, we have to embrace, uh, you know, the, the longest book of the Bible is the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms. And was like 80% of the Psalms are laments. And let's be honest, as modern people, we do not do laments. I, I mean, if I can be a little bit vulnerable here, I actually, um, one of the fruits that has come out of a season of counseling I went through about 18 months ago was the discovery of an emotion called sadness. And I had no category for sadness. And so what I did was I moved just to anger. And what I've discovered for, for me, at least, is that the difference between sadness and anger is anger means I got to fix this. And without the category of sadness, I was just reacting explosively to anything like it's good to be upset at injustice, at evil. This mm -hmm. virus is evil. It's good that we are moved by it. And yet we have to learn how to lament, how to be sad, how to cry to God and say, God, I'm just I'm frustrated. That makes so much sense, because if this is a, is a merely interruptive event, then our hope will be dependent on our fixing this. Mm -hmm. And if we are sad, by definition, that means we are acknowledging we don't have an ability to fix this. And this may be disruptive. Yeah. That requires a hope that is not dependent on our ability to fix that. And frankly, the only way we're going to be able to lament or to humble ourselves is if we know that there is a God who is on his throne. Hmm. You know, but yeah. then the other aspect of this that Peter brings out, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Hmm. And um, God is not saying cast your cares upon me because it's the right thing to do. God knows that we need an economy that works. God also knows that we need to be able to keep the public healthy. He cares deeply about both of those factors that are driving us. And so the key, and this is the third practice, I think, that is necessary to be non-anxious, is to actually spend time in the presence of God. And at the risk of kind of being the pastor that oversimplifies it and says, you know, read your Bible and pray. <laughs> I mean, there is no way to cast your anxiety upon the Lord because he cares for you without regularly reading his word and praying. And again, I mean, this is a, you know, I've been a pastor for almost 15 years, but I would say it's only in the last two years that I have begun to develop a regular habit of not just reading the Bible so I can teach it to others, but spending time in God's presence because he is the source of life. Mm. And I, I almost feel like there's this diagnostic question that is sort of like, I feel this in myself when I'm feeling anxiety kind of beginning, it feels like it begins to rise up in my chest and I can feel it in the bottom of my throat. It's a sign that I'm not actually living out of the presence of God. And so the solution isn't get the right answer or do better, try harder, or just hold on to tamp it back down. The solution is humble yourself, lament, and lean into the presence of God in scripture and in prayer. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I as you're talking about this image came to mind of like living in Colorado, uh, especially the last two years, we've had worst hail uh, in the May through June, sometimes first part of July months. Hmm. And we, yeah, we've had 
two insurance claims, one on the house, one on the car, and there's probably another one on the house that's due, right? It's and yeah. and if you park your anxiety uh, on the street between the hailstorms, you are not going to experience a whole hell of a lot of peace. And then when the hail actually comes, it's pretty devastating and it, it's costly. Right. And then you have to go get pelted and get knocked unconscious by baseball size hail that's cracking your windshield. Right. Uh, it's okay. It's not baseball, but it, it was definitely golf ball last year. If you park your anxiety in the garage where it is sheltered, it does not mean that you don't still have anxiety anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. It just means it is protected mm-hmm. in between the hailstorms and during the hailstorms such that it bleeds off the unnecessary anxiety that would otherwise we'd be experiencing this. So where do you park your anxiety? You park your anxiety in the hope that this is just an interruptive pause on going back to our ability to source our dignity, value, and worth in that which we achieve? Or do we park our anxiety in the garage of grace where God, you, you still have it. It's not that you are acting like that's not a thing. But yeah. it's- or what we're doing though, isn't it that we're parking our anxiety in the, the decision of our governor, really? about when things are going to open up and how it's going to happen. Yeah. And let's be honest, there's some great governors and probably some not so great governors, but I would rather park my anxiety under the mighty hand of God hmm. than Good, governor dude. of California. Nothing, I, nothing personal. I need to listen to that sermon. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we've been talking about what makes this conversation so hard to have, right? How the polarization is being fed, why our own fears and anxieties are bubbling up to the surface in the midst of, but like, what actually is the right answer? <laughs> like if it's, if this is a false dichotomy and a bad choice that we're being presented with, how in the world do we understand what is, what is right and good of, of the two of them? Uh, so maybe let me set that up because the, the, the choice that we're being presented, that the secular culture is presenting us is, should we pursue our flourishing, like my individual flourishing, the flourishing of my family through, darn it, we got to get back to work because otherwise I'm going to go broke soon. Or should I pursue the flourishing of myself and my family by saying, hey, why don't we all just stay home for a few more weeks so that nobody else gets sick? Mm. Um, I love the the way that you framed that. I, I'm preaching through First Peter for our church right now, and in a couple Sundays, I'll be tackling First Peter two thirteen through seventeen, which says this. This is really at the forefront of my mind right now. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, there is so much. About wow. with the- There's so much uh, silencing foolish people. I, I, we could talk about that for a long time. But I, I think the thing we want to dive into, right, is what is my freedom for? Yes, your freedom. This says, first of all, what I love about Peter in the way he's framing this, he's actually anticipating that the good news of our Christian freedom that we have will be used as a cover-up for doing evil, Hmm. right? Let's just pause and see and just like appreciate the foresight of that because, wow, if there is anything that evangelicals are being accused of right now, both right and wrong, is that the right in, in the country, and I don't want to use evangelical as synonymous with conservative, culturally conservative, politically conservative, but that is 
at least perceived to be the there's case. There's a Venn diagram where there's a large section of overlap there. Yeah, um, but not the, the perception is that that tribe, right, is using our freedom as a cover-up for selfishness that doesn't care about people of color, people in lower economic classes, those in more urban and dense environments who are more at risk. And so Peter anticipates this, and he says, and verse 15 being the context for this, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, people who are wrongly understanding you and your perceived critics, rather than just defending yourself or using your freedom to shout them down, maybe shut up and put up and do good, right? Mm. Um, and then if we, if we need it even more explicit than that, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 24, is also engaging with this idea of personal freedom when he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Mm. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So he's engaging with this personal freedom and he's saying very explicitly in the very next verse, verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but for the good of his neighbor. And so Bryce, to answer your question, what you should do for the flourishing of your family is to flourish other families. That until our conversation backs up and questions the premise of what is best for us versus what is best for our neighbor, we will not be able to answer either of those with with any kind of of a fullness or nuance uh, in the way that biblically is wise. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the narratives that you hear coming from the evangelical or right side of the political spectrum often is, hey, you know, the United States was founded on the principle of freedom. And the thing that has morphed in the last 30 to 40 years as secularism has become the dominant narrative is that my individual freedom is the freedom to do whatever I want. And biblically, that has never been the definition of freedom. The biblical definition of freedom is freedom to be the person God has created you to be. I mean, in the First Peter 3 passage you just read, Brad, he says, don't use your freedom to do evil. Use your freedom to serve God, right? Yes. In First Corinthians 3, he says, you have freedom, but just because you have freedom doesn't mean everything is good. So you have the right to do lots of things that are not things you should do. Yeah, and and <laughs> what Paul, Peter, and yes, Jesus also um, through them is saying is is that yes, you have freedom, and also with that freedom comes a responsibility, a responsibility to exercise that freedom according to the grace that you have been given. In other words, this is this is just covenant. This is covenant theology. This is God saying to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will be a blessing to you. Why do I have this blessing? Why do I have this freedom? Oh, so that you will be a blessing to the nations. Jesus says in the Great Commission, I will be with you till the end of the age. I have all authority in heaven and in earth. It has been given to me. Therefore, you are called with a responsibility to leverage that authority and presence for the good of your neighbor, period, yeah. right? Can I, I just feel like I just want to re-hit the gospel point there because what I don't want anybody to hear is suck it up and stop being so selfish, right? The point of the gospel is not, hey, don't be a selfish person, be an other-centered person. Now go do that. The point of the gospel is God has given his life for us. God cares for, I mean, I'm um, in Matthew, six, therefore, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Is, is anybody anxious about that right now? Uh, nor about your body or what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Mm. Uh, He goes on and he says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And, And again, I think that's what's so compelling and beautiful about Jesus is that he doesn't say, just stop being anxious. It's gonna be fine. No, he says, you have a father who has everything at his disposal and he knows that you need these things. He knows that you need to eat and drink and have a place to sleep and be able to pay the bills. God loves you. He cares for you. And he's demonstrated his care and love for us in coming to earth, taking on our flesh, living the life we should have lived, dying the death we deserved, rising again and ascending into glory. And Paul, yeah, Paul makes that gospel tie-in so explicit. I've been thinking so much about Philippians 2 when he says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count one another as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And here's, here's the fuel for that. The only reason we can do that and the reason why we are called to and the, the, the very means we have of, of doing so is because very next verse, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, because of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He constrained himself into human form. He gave up and emptied himself of his divine freedom. And that, that language of the form of a servant is the same language Peter is using when he says, use your freedom to serve God. Hmm. It is because Jesus used his freedom to serve us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Jesus used his freedom to serve you. It's not that Jesus used his freedom to serve others. It's Jesus used his freedom to serve you. So Brad, let me let me ask this then. Um, you know, there's there's some of us who we find ourselves, we're watching the news, we're getting increasingly anxious about what is or isn't going on. You and I are both pastors. Obviously, we have lots of friends that are pastors. And one of the questions that we are just very practically wrestling with is when do we begin to regather again as a church and what does that look like? So how does what we've just been talking about, about using our freedom to serve others? others play into the way that we answer that question? Yeah, I think, first of all, if we actually believe everything we were talking about, we have to acknowledge and make sure at the forefront of that conversation is that we are able to give significant grace to one another as we are wrestling with it. Because none of us have any experience or or uh, track record or data points on how the hell to navigate this. And so we're all in, in a way kind of fumbling in the dark and trying to do our best with that. Um, You've never led a church through a, a global pandemic before? Turns out. I haven't either. Just so yeah. Um, But but thanks for, I really appreciate that validation. Yeah. So here's how I'm thinking through it is like, right. If I'm thinking about what's good for our neighbor, it could be easy to kind of oversimplistically apply that and say, Hey, we're just not going to, to gather and meet for like indefinitely for like a really long time. And until there's a vaccine, until there's a vaccine. Right. And, and there is a sense that that is a very good inclination. And the awareness that <laughs> uh, it is conferences, 
uh, concerts and religious events that have been the super spreader events so far in this makes me super sympathetic to that because, and I'm probably, honestly, I'm, I'm erring a little bit more in the direction of rather being safe than sorry, right? Because we have our witness to think about among our neighbors and their perception of us as well as their actual welfare. And the last thing I want to do is find out that our gathering too early, even, and I'm not talking too early in a legal sense. I'm saying even after we've been allowed to regather, yeah. uh, my God, I don't want, I don't, I, I don't want to do that to anybody. Right. Um, however, there's this other element that if we think about like, okay, what is the church's calling right now here? Because I, I, I hate the language of reopening when we're talking about the church, the church yeah. was closed. Okay. Um, we are talking about regathering in person on Sunday morning. The church is still open. We never closed. Yeah. But in that there is a real need and a hope that we have that is unique to and exclusive to the embodied gathered people of God around the grace that both gives us hope is the refuge for our anxiety is the place where we can lament and therefore be freed to love our neighbor as ourselves because we are rooted and secure in there. And that doesn't mean that our identity is dependent on our gathering. It means that our identity is refreshed and recommitted in, 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 in our gathering. And so because of that, there is a consideration that we don't want to wait longer than we need yeah. to in order for our people to be fueled to love their neighbor as them, themselves. I don't know when that's going to be yet. However, that's what it looks like. Yeah, so there, there's a sense in which our regathering is actually for the benefit of our neighbor. Because, and, and just, I, I mean, there's a very deep theological uh, stuff we can go into on that. But just at a very practical level, if the solution to our anxiety is humility, lament, and the presence of God, where are you going to learn how to do that? I mean, especially, I mean, all of us need help. Um, as a community, that's that's part of the reason why the church gathers to be refreshed in humility, so, in lament, and in the presence of God. Absolutely, and that's why this is so such a hard conversation for pastors to have because most of the people who are feeling the urgency to regather, the most of the pastors are are doing so from a place of like, what is my right and my freedom? Like we have constitutional rights, freedom of assembly, and well, I mean that's that's a perfect example of what Paul's speaking to. You do have the right, but just because we have the freedom doesn't mean it's it's for the good. And that's that's why it pisses me off so much as a pastor because that is pastoral malpractice to be telling your people and communicating to your people and leading God's flock in such a way that it is about your freedom and not the blessing that God gives us and therefore is to be leveraged for the good of the nations and our neighbors, right? Like that moment is number one, making it harder for us to have that conversation in a truly biblical way. But it's also telling our neighbors that our primary concern in gathering is selfish and that is not biblical. And we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot and, and telling people, now I'm not saying that everyone who's feeling an urgency to regather is, is doing so based on that. I'm talking about those who are explicitly rooting their reason for gathering in that why. Yeah. And that's not biblical, right? Okay, I'm going to take a deep breath because like the last thing that needs to be said is like the way that we deal with that, because there is an anxiety both of inaction and action. This can be such a, oh my gosh, a paralyzing moment. Uh, for for leaders, for Christians, for our neighbors, for everyone, what the hell do you do with that? I think it has it has to start with lament because lament is simultaneously this trust 
that God, number one, wants to hear our grief. Number two, that he's big enough to handle it. And number three, that he is going to respond. And when we do that, we are able to make that switch from this being uh, approaching this as an interruptive experience versus a disruptive experience. And we will actually be able to experience God's presence more. And, and we will be able to respond to our neighbor's needs more. Because if we're not able to do that, I don't know what, what, what else we have. I mean, this is the reason for the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so until we are able to regather, I think that means we have to do that first as pastors, and then we have to do that with our people and, and especially other leaders who are then going to, like we tell that we, they need to go and lament with, with others um, and to, to carry that along. And then we'll be able to act. But I, I, don't, I don't get the impression, Bryce, that either we as a country, especially, but also not even the church, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we, like, I think we still have a long way to go in terms of parking our anxiety under the, the, the roof of God's protective wings. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the other aspect of this, and this could open up a whole nother can of worms, is that when we're able to regather does not mean that things are now at the new normal. You know, like yeah. this, this season is going to extend. Certainly the economic uh, repercussions of this even three-month shutdown are going to extend for several more years. So just because we're able to gather again and it's wise to do so doesn't mean that we are now past COVID-19. I was actually thinking this morning about the question of, and I don't know when this will happen, if it'll be in six weeks or six months, but I just decided this morning that the sermon, the first week that our church is able to regather I'm going to preach on blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted because no matter where we are, Hmm. there is a lot to mourn and still continue to mourn. Hmm. But, But we don't mourn as those without hope. We mourn as those who in our grief are going to be comforted by God himself who knows the depth of our, of our sorrow. Hmm. Man, that's good. Yeah. And I just wonder if some of our lament is actually, we're just not going to be fully able to go there until we have celebrated our regathering. Hmm. And then because of the space that that joy affords, look back and see more fully what we need to grieve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I guess, I guess my, uh, my hope and conviction is that this isn't just an interruption, but it is a disruption mm-hmm. and that things will not go back to normal and that there's a lot of good in that. But part of that is the reality that we are going to have to, as pastors, teach people how to lament. As Christians, as a church, we're going to have to learn how to embrace the language of lament, not because we want to be downers. Yeah, not because we want to be downers, because I want to hope person. And that can't happen without emotionally processing that. Right, right. And the only way to, to be realistic and to live with hope is to actually learn how to lament, not just complain, but lament is is driving our, our sadness back towards God and saying, God, I don't understand this. What are you doing here? Amen. Have to do that if we're going to be able to live with hope. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Everything Just Changed. We hope it's been helpful to you as you are looking for hope in this time of uncertainty. Coming up in our next couple of episodes, we're going to be changing our tack a little bit. We've been doing a lot of cultural observation and analysis, but in the next couple of weeks, we want to explore at a more personal level the ways that we're wrestling through the challenges of being a non-anxious presence in this time where many are driven by fear. What does it actually look like to embrace lament and let that drive us to hope and to joy? 
I think these upcoming episodes will be really helpful for any in a position of leadership grappling with the pressures of caring for others while also attending to your own soul. So if you haven't already, please subscribe so you don't miss those coming out in the next couple of weeks. You can get subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed.